Welcome to another edition of Rebellion's educational series. Today we have a living legend, the founder of USC's video games department, a man who started image work back in the early 70s, who has seen the evolution of virtual reality. Uh, we're so lucky to have you, uh, Dr. Zaga. Welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, no. So let's start with the first question. Do you think that the huge jump in usage of video games will continue post-pandemic, or is this kind of a one-shot deal? I think it's going to continue. You know, there's been a, a huge increase in the number of people who play games in the last 16 years. So if you look at um, the game industry in 2005, was about the same size as the film industry in terms of revenue. And now it's about five times the size of the film industry in terms of revenue. And so, yeah, with the COVID, we, we've seen Electronic Arts, Activision put out notes that they're a 20% increase in people playing their games. This is enormous jump. It's a fantastic jump. It is the most interactive media. Nothing else holds the attention span the way gaming does. It's interactive. I mean, when I started at USC, people used to say, the only people who play games are people who play in their basement. During COVID, the people who play games are the people who are stuck at home, who are talking to their friends across the chat systems of games and playing games with them. And what you realize is games really are collaborative, they're fun, and you're not just hiding in your basement. You know, they're also a great release during times of stress. Uh, you know, apparently Dick Fold was playing Brick Breaker while Lehman Brothers was uh, cratering. So it's... You know, it, it is a nice release for human beings, and this is a more stressful time. I mean, COVID is, you know, epic right now in terms of what people uh, Younger people play games, you know. They don't watch TV, television so much. That is something else that's very much apparent. Younger people do not enjoy TV. You know, gaming is much more popular with uh, sub-35s. Exactly. And uh, that's just the way it is. It's the media that they like to do. You know, the television of days of when I was a child, there were three networks, ABC, CBS, and NBC. And there was a public television station that no one watched except for once in a while. And so now you have 2,000 channels. So you don't know what to watch, so let's go play games. Exactly. Uh, that's, that's, uh, that's, a, that's an interesting point. So over 30 years, you had 3,000 students plus I, you know, uh, at USC. And I've got to wonder... How has the student developed? What are you teaching now versus 30 years ago? How are the students different versus 30 years ago? Well, I've been at USC just 16 years. I founded the program 16 years ago. But, oh, my um, apologies. And, and I've had 3,000 students come through my classes in those 16 years, and they've gone to jobs in the games and computing industries. So when I founded the program, the original thought was everybody wanted to become a programmer on a triple A console title. Okay. That, was, that was what 2004, 2005 looked like. 2006 is sort of the modern start of the big move to mobile games. And in fact, well, Electronic Arts, I think in 2005, looked at Jamdat and said, why would we look at mobile games consoles where it's at? And the next year they bought Jamdat for $660 million because they said, you know what? There really is stuff here. Oh. And I would say 50 to 60% of my students, the jobs they go to now are in the mobile industry. So will mobile continue to dominate? Is that the future of gaming? 
Yeah, I think mobile is, is, is going to grow more and more because if you look at the graphics that's being placed into the iPhone, into the, the Google Pixel phones, and the processors they're putting in there, the amount of memory they're putting in there, these, these are processors that are faster than most game consoles that are out there right now. So you can actually put together, if you program, say, the iPhone using the metal interface, you can put together a, a 3D game that just looks fantastic. And, and, and it's with you all the time. I don't have to have a, a, a controller wired to a box that's wired to a television that, you know, unless I unwire it and carry it to my friend's house, I really can't do much. But I have my phone with me all the time. I can take an iPad with me all the time. So I think that's a big change. Yeah. So will you know, NVIDIA video cards, you know, which offer just amazing uh, you know, colors and lights, will that be something you'll be able to access with a, a mobile phone? Well, I think so. I think as we go to 5G, all kinds of things change. You know, right now, if we are out, out and about and we're on a friend's Wi-Fi, we can get pretty decent speed. The network in, in my apartment in downtown LA is one gigabit network, which is pretty fast. And that's great. But when I'm out and about, I'm, I'm on LTE network and, and LTE in America is, I don't know, maybe 11 or 12 megabits download. And on a good day, you might get one, one to 10 megabit upload. It's not, it's not that great. Where 5G is going to be up at uh, really high speeds. It's going to be like your best cable internet to your home, which means all of a sudden, if I want to access a uh, NVIDIA GPU or a room full of NVIDIA GPUs from my mobile device, then I can do it over a 5G network. So I can't put that 5G, the, the NVIDIA chip into the phone because it's going to make the phone melt. Because right now it it's high, requires high power, requires a lot of cooling. But if I have a large number of these and I can share a piece of it and get a little bit of computation done, then I can build games that have interesting machine learning systems in back as backends that machine learning systems will be the AI characters that you play against in your 3D game on your phone. Hmm. Very interesting. Well, well, things, well like, things like Google Stadia and newer versions of what that is, more interesting versions, are going to be really hot when 5G is hot. Yeah, I, no, I agree. Google's, Google Stadia is going to be much more impressive on 5G. But speaking of 5G, will this be the, I guess, catalyst for VR to finally take off? I mean, you know, since I was a kid, VR has been the, the failed promise of the gaming industry. Well, you know, so, so all technology takes a long time to come out. I mean, you know, Ivan Sutherland, what, invented the term virtual world in 1964. Mm -hmm. his, his head mounted display probably cost $60,000. It's a research project and probably weighed 30 pounds. It wasn't exactly something portable. It was kind of interesting from the technology standpoint. In the mid 1980s, we had uh, head mounted displays that cost $6,000 that had 320 by 220 displays in each eye. And they were really expensive, you know, 6,000 is expensive. And uh, they were plugged into, you know, in the mid 1980s, silicon graphics workstations, which cost $60,000, which maybe did like 3,000 triangles per, set, per frame of, of graphics power, which isn't very high no. today. Your iPhone is way more powerful than everything we had in the mid 1980s, all right? So, 
I think um, we got into this phase now where people were thinking about plugging their iPhone into a housing that could give them a, an AR or a VR experience, or they could take that same technology of the screens and put it into a low cost for $350, $400 device and, and do virtual reality stuff. And the real thing was in the latest, in the, the, the dying thralls of the, the current VR experience, people put all, all of the VC money was in betting on different headsets. Mm -hmm. I was in China in um, Nanjing and I, and I went to uh, a company there and that company's job was to make a, a game engine that worked on all 75 of the, the virtual reality headsets that were available in China, all by different manufacturers, all with different interface requirements, all with different graphic systems underneath. And they had a layer that sat and worked for all of them. So that's where all the VC money went. And, and if you went to a VC in the years 2014, uh, which is really when low-cost VR started happening with HTC Vive, and said, I want to you know, build, build some content. How, how can I get money for content? There was no money. There was no money for five years. And the only people who built uh, stuff that had content that sold basically did it on their own dime without any invested money while they did other work, which was their real day job. So there, there's not that much great content. So the consequence is, People see a $350, $400 device, which they might buy and buy five apps. So there's not much you can do with it. Yeah, there's no, there's no big business there. Oh. It's, it, and I'll tell you though, you know, when, when you talk to people involved in the development of the original iPhone, which is what, 2007, and I, and I talked to one of the, the vice president of software for Apple Computer back then. And when it came out, he, and, it was, there was a weird period when the iPhone was out, but there wasn't an SDK for people to write their own games and apps. And he was in charge of hurrying up that development of that SDK to, to make it so people could develop apps. And he goes, well, when we designed this phone, we thought that people would only want three or four apps anyway. And after 90 days of owning the phone, they would never buy another app. So we didn't invest a lot in building an SDK. So that's the planning Apple had. So what they discovered is once they built this SDK and it was out, I think 2008, all of a sudden there was a massive market for games and utilities and filters for your phone and all kinds of stuff happened. I mean, Jobs had an amazing ability to see the future, but you know, you can't see everything, of course. Oh, no, he, he had some things that he was really good at looking at, but you know, thinking about, well, will people really want to build apps? No, he didn't, he didn't have a good vision for that. And so, so, you know, now, I don't know, on my iPhone, there must be 300 apps. There's so many that I've run out of screens for Apple to display them. So like if I delete one, about five seconds later, and one that's not visible but is on the phone pops up so I can see it. So if, if Steve Jobs were alive today, what do you think he would be most excited about? Oh, good question. You know, I, I think he would be thinking about is there something more that he could do in the online game space? You know, if you look at companies like Valve with Steam, where they're selling games, or you look at, at companies like Epic's got the Epic Store, you know, Apple's got its, you know, it's its app store, but he might start to think, you know, there should be some better support for games that Apple could do. 
Uh, clearly, there's lots of. Uh, would he be fighting with Epic Software? Do you think, or would he have tried to spy it, or what do you think? Uh, you know, so so Epic is, Epic is, I think, make is is has stepped in it really badly with what they're doing, from a couple perspectives. In that, first of all, they wanted to renegotiate a contract they already signed by declaring war on the company they signed it with. Yes. By going to court and asking for antitrust uh, stuff to happen on your head. Antitrust is federal, right? And the last thing Epic needs is the federal government helping them do their business, okay? Because someone might say, hey, Epic, 46% is owned by Tencent Games, which is the largest Chinese company, and they make WeChat that Donald Trump wants to ban. So they're a big target. They made themselves a bigger target by attacking Apple, all right? So I think it's a horrible mistake they've made. Uh, from the perspective of people who are building on Epic Engine. Now, the Epic Engine is great. And the, thank God the court said, yes, you can continue to do it, and Apple cannot ban you guys from the store, because if you build a game with the Unreal Engine and follow Apple's rules, then you're fine. But, the, but they went and turned around and said, well, you know, uh, Fortnite, you know, Fortnite's, you're trying to fight a contract that you already signed. You're trying to fight it with the courts, and I think the courts are going to tell them, tough luck, guys, Fortnite on, on the iOS platform is just going to either die or you're going to do some kind of negotiation with Apple and say, we're sorry. So it's tough Apple. to fight uh, the beast, and Apple's yeah. the beast. Yeah, well, it's, a Apple's, Apple's got money. Epic has some money. Uh, but I think Epic has always been a local North Carolina company, and it's it doesn't get out scale. What's the future for independent gaming companies? Oh, well, it's it's it's, it's it, you know, in the mobile space, it's hard because there's you know a couple million games, and uh, so if you have money, a lot of I have this issue with my students all the time, is they want to build a game and think my game is great. I'm going to put it in the iTunes store and it's going to sell millions of copies for five dollars. I'm like, well, how much money do you have for marketing? And they'll say, well, I got no money for money. So, 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 you know, if you look at a game like Call of Duty, it costs $150 to make the latest version, $150 million to make the latest version, then Activision is also going to spend $150 million in marketing the game. They're going to see it all on television. Every movie you see in theaters, there's going to be ads. It's going to be all over the place. Whereas if you've built an app and you're selling it for 99 cents on the iTunes store, what's your marketing budget? So what's happening in the iTunes store is companies like Electronic Arts, and Activision, and Zynga, and Disney, companies that have a known IP where there's a, you know, a Mickey Mouse game one, two, and three, or you know, something like that. Those are gonna make money because they're known IPs. So, but there's very hard to make an investment into new games. And I'll give you an example. There's a, a game in the iTunes store now called where uh, I think it's uh, it was originally called House of Cards but I think it's now where the cards fall mm -hmm. and that was built inside of my advanced games class and that student graduated and then spent the next eight or nine years to finish the game in his spare time and it got into the iTunes store and Apple gave it an award and it came out with their their latest you know, their latest game effort is one of the highlighted games, and I'm sure he's finally made some money on that game. Oh. 
but that's a long drought, eight years, to nine years to work on the game. You know, we're an in industry, every version of Call of Duty is two and a half years, like clockwork. If they miss it by a week, it's a failure. No, oh, no, it's, it's amazing how quickly they come out with their new games. Yeah. So, so I guess you're, you're rather pessimistic on the age of the independent. I think, the, I, I think there's, you know, the real question is how much money do you have to spend before, before you decide to get, before someone big acquires what you have. Yeah. So the real thing is, and it's sort of the same way with venture capital, which is I, I'm advisor to uh, 15 startups. And I have one friend who sold his first startup to Electronic Arts and his, sec, his third startup to um, Yahoo. It became Yahoo Games. And the guy's super brilliant. And everything, and so he's got a big bucket of money to float him through his next two ideas. Right? And in fact, he's got two real hot ideas. One is uh, fantastic uh, and it's going to be a really, fan, a really great effort. And it's going to be perfect to come out when 5G is out. So, so you're, you're very excited about 5G and you think, yeah. you think virtual reality will finally have its day as well? I, I, I think virtual, well, it, it, if people can make virtual reality without a headset, so there's, there's, uh, well, we need the content drive, as you pointed out as well, of course. Yeah. And you need content. So there's, there's a whole lot of pieces that have to be there. There's a company called uh, Thanos right now that has a, a flat panel display that can, uh, do virtual reality without putting a head mounted display on, but maybe some lightweight stereo glasses. They also have a projector mounted, a hundred dollar pro stereo projector that they can project on any surface in the same fashion and that you can move the projector around to move through the virtual world. So there's very interesting things happening. Very good tech demos right now. There's not a completed product. There's not a, you know, ready to go anywhere and there's no content for it other than cool demos. Well, so so there, there's that. But I, you know, so Facebook's got a lot of money and they've got Oculus and they can do something. They've just got to cut the prices. They've got to, uh, work on their reputation a bit to, to get themselves back into the, you know, we're really not content that people will want to buy an Oculus set for. Yeah, exactly. Well, speaking of wanting now, you know, we're coming to the end of our show and I, I've got to ask as we conclude, has there been a video game that has inspired you that has stuck with you personally for me, it's Zelda a link to the past from super Nintendo 1991. That is uh, my favorite game of all time. Do you have one yourself, doctor? I you know, when, when, when I was learning how to program in about 1973, we was started, it R71 or? Yeah, 73. Uh, we started playing this game called Adventure, which was you're in, a, you're in a dark room. There are doorways out of this room to the left of you, to forward and to your right. What, and you have to tell it which way to go. And we just totally loved that game. We spent so much time in that game, all my friends. And we drew maps which was, there was a big maze in there that you had to go through. So you had to draw, if you didn't take a piece of paper and draw out the map on the piece of paper or on the blackboard, then you never solved the game. We were totally into that. And it was fun. All I remembered is that we played against each other in that. It was awesome. So I did a talk this morning with a former student of mine, uh, Batananda Kumar, and he, he is part of the last nine Call of Duty games that got shipped. Mm -hmm. At Activision, he just went to work for Nintendo in Texas, and uh, he's he is he is he says during COVID lockdown, 
he went back to his high school friends. And they found their old mid, late 1990s games and they're playing them again because they needed to feel good. They needed to get back to the time when they were in high school. And even though he's in Texas and they're in India and other places, they all get together once or you know, two or three times a week. And, and it's, it makes them feel great. So it's funny, it's not about technology then, it's about uh, the formative years. and Formative you know, years and what, what you remember fondly. Yeah. So my, my son probably was the, and my daughter, probably the N64. Yeah. You know, the N64 was an awesome machine. Silicon graphics. Well, it was an awesome machine. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, this was awesome, Doctor. Thank you so much, and uh, you have a wonderful evening. You too. Thank you for the interview. You have a great day.